Welcome, everyone. Welcome to another uh, episode of Solving Temporary Staffing Problems, also known as STSP. You can find us on stsp.live, all past episodes as well. Welcome, guys, and welcoming my beautiful, wonderful colleagues, Ben Madsen and Ryan Belargin. Thanks for being part of the call and part of the podcast, guys. You guys are not only handsome, but absolutely wonderful and intelligent, especially you, Ryan. Oh, wow. Love you. <laughs> guys, we are an interesting uh, time in temporary staffing. Um, we are going to talk about the Temporary Worker Bill of Rights that has hit New Jersey. This is a very hot topic, obviously, for employers and for temporary staffing agencies alike. And it's something that's very unique that seems to be, you know, kind of a trend that potentially is going around in parts of the U.S. Um, I know that California has had parts of this already kind of in its legislation, um, but this brings uh, the New Jersey legislation of Temporary Worker Bill of Rights, it brings it all to a, a whole new level uh, of what I have ever thought would be possible. Now, I, I, I want to I address first the spirit of things, right? So the spirit of having a Bill of Rights for potentially communities that um, historically may have been taken advantage of in one way or the other is something that I'm personally a proponent for. You know, I believe that that underserved uh, communities or or communities that don't have a large voice, and sometimes that's in labor communities, labor communities that are what we are considered less skilled workers. Um, they typically may not have uh, the voice that's necessary to protect their rights. But I also think that there is kind of overstepping some of those lines as well. And I'm not a fan of pendulant swings, right? Uh, you know, pendulant swinging all the way to this way and then all the way the other way, right? I think it creates quite a problem. And I think it happens because it is, we're creating something with the spirit of, 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 of an idea, but not understanding the impact that it has down to the community and the impact to the businesses and the community that they're trying to serve. So the idea is not the practical ideas that actually create the difference. And and uh, again, these are opinion related, but we'll go through some of that. I know that Ben, you've you've spent a, a large amount of time going um, through the legislation itself. I think you and five other people on the planet actually read the legislation, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So I know that it's a big piece of legislation. But the things that were really interesting in this legislation. It's impacting transportation, the way that individuals are getting to work. Um, it's impacting um, uh, the uh, the ability. Okay, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Ben. So there is a presumption of retaliation on the way that it, things are being interpreted should an assignment be ended, right? That's a big so, one. We'll come back to that. Yep. Right? That's a real, real big one. Um which is something that's really interesting. I wonder how that's going to play out. And then it's impacting pay rates, right? Which is very impactful for businesses throughout the U.S. who have budgeted a certain amount, consideration that, hey, our, our temporary population, flexible talent population is going to make X, our full-time employees are going to make X or, or Y. And so now legislation within this Temp Bill of Rights is saying, no, you're going to pay 
your temporary associates at the same rate that you're paying your full-time employees, right? And so that potentially is problematic if you've already set a budget or if you have a certain margin that you're working and you're living by, right? And there's a trickle-down effect on that as well. So I figured that we would go through this and maybe, you know, we, we may not have answers on how to manage all of this because I know that some of this remains fluid, but the impact is happening very soon, right? We have a, a May launch on, on one piece of the legislation. And then I think we have a, uh, what was it, an August or September August. launch, mm-hmm. right? On, on the remainder of it. And, and, and I'm, and it's unclear to me if any associations or businesses have filed any lawsuits against the legislation. So let's go through each one of them quickly. So our audience understands clearly what to expect in New Jersey and what potentially to expect in the neighboring towns. Because if New Jersey's doing it, I, I would suspect that Pennsylvania's right behind them. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's something to consider in consideration that there's distribution centers um, in these areas that are quite large and employing a large number of temporary associates. I know that we do, right? We have, you know, a very large number of associates in New Jersey and, and, and Pennsylvania. So uh, I'm going to go through some points that you put together, Ben, and then maybe you can talk us through them a little bit. Um, the, the, the one that I, that I thought was interesting is understanding the labor categories that are being impacted. So I, I know that you mentioned that not all temporary workers are being impacted, but there are specific labor categories that are being impacted, yeah. um, which are around um, food preparation. I'm going to read my list, building and grounds cleaning, personal care, construction laborers, helpers, construction trades, uh, installation, maintenance and repair occupations, production occupations, transportation and material material moving occupations. Now, what I wasn't sure is there was one that was called kind of miscellaneous manufacturing. And that was the one that was I was the most interested in hearing about, right? Although all of these are obviously impacted, right? But miscellaneous seems to be very gray. So what is considered miscellaneous? Do we know yet if a material handler is considered miscellaneous, right? Um, if a forklift driver is considered miscellaneous, if a high-low driver or a cherry picker is considered miscellaneous, um, somebody who's unpacking a truck, right, unloading a truck, is that considered miscellaneous? What do you know about that? So these are these are standardized Bureau of Labor Statistic categories that are going to be recognizable to someone like Ryan. He references these a lot in his reporting, and you can find, you know, data and the, it's it's the government's attempt to categorize the labor that's happening and of course it adjusts as you know new new occupations appear and new technology arises and that kind of thing most of what you're describing is going to be in that last category the transportation and materials moving that's the big big bucket and that's i think why we as a company are emphasizing the impact of this so much is it's that's a massive amount of the the business that we are involved in and are close to and that our clients are involved in is just this sort of large 3PL distribution warehousing e-commerce where you do tend to find a lot of that external contingent workforce because of the nature of their business it's cyclical it's focused on retail and sales weekends and consumer demand and of course as you know the pandemic 
came in, there was a massive spike in the amount of labor needed in that category, so much so that our clients couldn't find it. But I, I, I want to just go back and quickly emphasize or restate something that I think you put nicely, which is kind of the spirit in which we're approaching this conversation. I want to echo what you said, which is, you know, we we are not um, we are not interested in you know suppressing advances for workers' rights. We are not taking a political position here that that's not a worthy cause, that those aren't worthy things to look at. My, I, and, and now I am going to opine a little bit, and this comes from experience kind of watching my father, who was a state senator um, in the Pacific Northwest when I was growing up. And so I learned a lot observing that. And then he went on to be on a national stage. He worked in the Department of Labor. And so he was very close to these types of issues, lawmaking, and then on the administrative side, law application. One of the biggest issues that he dealt with and one of the biggest issues that he championed while he was in his service was dealing with poorly written laws. So even laws that are great in spirit and might have a worthy goal if they are poorly poorly written, what you're left with is what we're trying to do right now is to navigate and interpret and apply something that is very, very unclear. And all the legal analysis I've read um, really, um, I think, agrees with that, that it's poorly written enough, especially when you come to those sections on wages, that companies are sort of waiting to find out how are we actually going to apply all of the different aspects of this law. Like you said, there's going to, there's a component in there which we'll touch on, which is you've got to create um, a pay scale which makes sure that your external workforce is paid on average kind of the same for the same job, that type of thing. And that's the end of it. And you're left to figure out or define the formula yourself. There will be over time, one of the things that we can expect now is that obviously you have an executive and a congressional body or the lawmaking body is going to write the law. And then it's going to be kicked over to the administrative side of the state government to actually sort of do that rulemaking and that interpretation and issue opinions. And then, of course, what you touched on is there's going to be pushback in the courts from companies who are challenging it or you know people who are challenging it. And then it will start to turn into something you can actually sink your teeth into. In the meantime, all we can do is understand it to the best of our ability and make recommendations. I don't think we're here to make predictions. Uh, we, we have some ideas and probably opinions about what we think the impact is going to be on our clients. And we've shared that with some of them. Um, but we're really focused on right now is understanding current state, preparing because we we are whatever our opinion might be, we are obliged to comply, and and even more importantly, we are obliged to prepare our, our clients so that they remain in compliance. And so, um, that that labor category is a big one. The the history of this law was interesting. I know you have a voice on the national stage that you're involved in. I wouldn't call it lobbying per se. It's more of an industry expertise group where you have a seat at the table because I know it's a mix of you know political parties and you know industry leaders and that type of thing. But this one um, seems to have caught some people flat-footed. Um, there was Very some true. back and forth, and that's how we got these industry categories. I read some of the history in the context where there were some conditional vetoes before it actually got signed and passed in February, where that was one of the areas where they narrowed the scope of this. It was not going to be all contract workers. You'll notice that there are large segments of the population that have been left out, and that is the influence of somebody going in there and saying, that's a stupid idea. You know, Don't include these. But I think... What we know now is that it's going to impact almost all of our clients because of that transportation and materials moving occupations. That's that's the forklifts. That's the cherry you know cherry pickers, and these are people who just you know move things back and forth, you know unload trucks, all of those types of. They're absolutely impacted. So 
That's a big one. Let me jump ahead to the dates. You pointed out that there are compliance dates in effect, and we've been, you know, these are things we can actually, you know, wrap our arms around because there's essentially 10 subsections in this broader law, and two of them go into effect on May 7th. And so we've been, you know, racing along with many others to make sure we understand what that is and that our, our, our uh, both us as a company and our customers are ready for this. The big one is something that I don't think is that catastrophic or is that uh, dramatic a change. It's really about making sure that people who are being dispatched to an assignment have the correct information. It's really about a dispatch form or making sure they have enough and information and accurate information. And it's something, in fact, we do right now, a variation of that, particularly in California, um, where it's really about pre-assignment, you're obligated now to present every associate with a written in their spoken language summary of some key details about what they can expect, meaning where's your assignment? What is the job? What is the pay? You know, how are they going to access benefits? And is there any available PTO, those types of things? And that's a checklist. That's not an over, you know, overly burdensome thing to comply with or put into place administratively. And that's what we've shared with our clients is that we're both ready for that. Um, we're going to make sure that they're, you know, any other sub vendors working through our programs are ready for that. And, um, we'll be, you know, we'll be ready to go on May 7th for that. We've, we've already pushed out that information. We're basically ready to go. The second one is something you've touched on regarding retaliation, but I'll pause there to kind of, uh, you know, so, you know, classifications, um, are one thing I, I, I get, you know, kind of that miscellaneous manufacturing where that's going to land. Um, the materials moving occupations, um, you know, understanding, all right, is that in fact defined as a material handler, somebody who's handling boxes and moving them, whether it be a forklift or by hand, is that considered a material moving occupation? Um, I think what, what, what I get overly concerned about this is this over-regulation of industry. And all that really seems to happen is that industry either moves away from doing business in that state or finds a workaround. Um, before we jumped on this podcast, we were talking about um, us SourceNowians <laughs> establishing residency in Argentina. And so we have colleagues that work for us in Argentina today. And getting them paid is, is, a, is a big challenge in Argentina because of the level of regulation that happens in Argentina and the overtaxation of it. Again, for me, I'm apolitical. I don't, I don't care about the politics of anything. Um, you know, in our in our world today, in the U.S., right? There's two major political parties, right? And it's unfortunate that you you're either with one side or another, right? <laughs> Can't be in between. <laughs> Can't think of like maybe this one has a little bit of good and this. No, you got to pick one. That's right. right. It is what it is, right? I, I just put on my business hat. I put on my business hat and I go, what's good for communities is good for business. And what's good for business should be good for communities. There's an ecosystem that should be respected in that. And as soon as that ecosystem is disrupted, where we created something that is just great for businesses and bad for communities or bad for, you know, or great for communities and bad for business, um, the whole system kind of falls apart. And what I find is that you just find workarounds. So like in Argentina, for That's example, um, they have this thing, um, you get taxed in Argentina. I think I was telling you guys 65 cents to the dollar, right? So every dollar you make 65 cents is going to the government. So what's happening? So the government is already bankrupt 
And so they figured, all right, let's just overtax everybody, right? We'll start collecting money. No, people are smart. They go, well, let's move our bank account outside of Argentina. Let me just pull it out of an ATM, right? And it's I'm not going to get taxed that way. Um, or so the Argentinian government started becoming hip to it and saying, well, we can't do that. And, you know, and they started kind of policing that. Well, they com- they the the gray market because it's not a black market in this. The gray market created what they call a mutual. Mutual is like this system of where Argentinian companies, not exterior companies from Argentina, Argentinian companies can pay their contractors through this what they call mutual. Right? I don't know if the the pronunciation in English is mutual or not, but this mutual is. You can pay the mutual and the mutual can funnel money to you and, and it, and it cuts out the Argentinian government in the process and you can collect your cash without getting banged in taxes that you get taxed, but the tax is very small. It's really small. So when I look at legislation like this, which, which again, the spirit of ensuring worker rights, I think is quite important, right? But this over legislation and poorly written, it, it's going to, it's just going to allow companies to try to figure out, well, what's the workaround, right? So I'll use an example of that. So if 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 I have my material handler at 53000000, whatever the number is, right? Um, so, and, and they have to be paid the same and that's going to impact my P&L. Well, what if I reclassify my people? What if I move my people into a different class code and create, now I'm not allowing any of my people to do that job, and I'm just going to create a class code that's specific for temp in there, problem solved, right? And now everything you tried to do and all the money you spent in legislation and writing this poor legislation goes out the window because I just figured out a workaround that was pretty simple. Instead of working with the companies and creating the, uh, working with businesses to create legislation that makes sense for both communities, I think you have to work with both communities. I'm a bit on my soapbox, but- Bear with me here. I'm going somewhere with this. When I think about what to do, I think it's care- we have to be careful about maybe the advice that we give to companies, right? You know, we, we're advising our customers on how to follow the legislation, how to be in compliance, right? And how to ensure that your suppliers are in compliance. Because one of the things that the legislation seems to point to, which is very similar to California, is the equal responsibility between the host employer and the temp agency. That's so, a big one. Right? It's a big one. It really because, comes through in that law. Yep. Yeah. So because they, they, the, the, uh, the company, the client might think, well, that's if, if my supplier is not compliant, that's on them, right? It's their employee. They should have given them a worksheet that showed them what, where the work site is and what the project is. And they should have put their, their hourly rate and the bill rate, which you have to put on the pay stub now, you have to put an hourly rate and a bill rate on there, which is going to be very confusing, by the way. Um, they're they're going to, but the truth is, is that in this legislation, it's critical that you as a company are ensuring compliance from your supplier because you're going to be equally as responsible. The state is going to go after you as much as they're going to go after the supplier if you're out of compliance. And if I, if I, from my memory serves me right, Ben, these, these fines were steep. So let's briefly go through a couple of them, right? So we talked about matching labor rates, ensuring that your labor rates are equivalent to the labor rates. 
that you're paying your, your FTEs today, having pay rates and bill rates on the actual pay stubs, that has to happen as well. And I think that piece of it happens August 5th, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so that's a, a really critical one as well. There are a bunch of record-keeping requirements. So you probably know them a lot better than, than I do. Um, transportation. Now, this is an interesting one. So you have these distribution plants that sometimes are outside of the scope of, of people being able to get there. So companies have provided transportation. Transportation costs money, right? So they charge back their, their, their employee, hey, we're going to provide you a bus, right? You can catch this bus on this route and we'll get you to work. And we're charging you, I think the average rate that I saw was $7 a trip. So it's about $15 round trip. You will no longer be able to charge your employees for that type of transportation. If you're going to provide transportation in any way, it has to be free. So you now have to build that into your cost of doing business, right? Your COGS, cost of doing cost of goods, and your P&L has got to consider transportation if you're giving transportation. Now, here's what that does that, that legislation doesn't understand. If I can no longer provide transportation because it becomes financially impossible for me to do, I can't do it, right? Because I, I don't know any company that's providing transportation and charging their workers for transportation, making millions and millions of dollars over it. They're creating that environment to make sure that their workers can come to work and just cover their costs typically, right? So what, what happens? Now you're saying, well, I can't provide it any longer. All right. Well, how's everybody going to get to work, right? This is a, a community that doesn't have the same level of transportation that maybe you and I have. So what do they do? I'm going to tell you how it happens in typically in these, in, 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 in light industrial labor communities. There's one person that has a car within one family or one group of friends. They all carpool. So they carpool, get to work. Great. Problem solved, right? Until the owner of that car either gets fired or resigns. Or guess what? If they're sick for the day. So when that happens, nobody got to work. The entire carpool couldn't get to work. Now, we as a company, we provide transportation for free. It's kind of a plug for us, but we, we do provide transportation for free. Um, but I think about some of these companies that are providing it as a service to ensure that people are getting to work, give them the opportunity. They would have to pay for public transportation if there was a public transportation line. And they would probably pay more, right? It's very expensive, especially in some of these areas. Now you're removing that possibility. So we're discouraging this ability to get people to work. The, the, the point is, is to give people the opportunity to get to work, not to create more hurdles for them to get to work. And if companies are providing opportunities or, or products and services to help people get to work at, re at reasonable rates, right? I, I mean, I, I don't understand the legislation to disrupt that. I do understand the spirit of it. If you're creating an environment where you're utilizing that as a revenue generating tool, right? And so somebody works and makes $12 an hour or $15 an hour, right? And they're getting banged for these transportation, you know, charges. And really they're coming home with $50 at the end of the week. I get it, right? Yeah. I totally get it. Ryan, but again, that's not it. 
Ryan, I wanted to ask you, because I think this is something that you pinpointed for us or pointed out to me at one point, we've got a client who's uniquely situated in New Jersey, in fact, where they've got some very large operations that draws labor from a very specific part of the state um, or metro area that is pretty far removed because it's a large it's a it's unique in that it's a large immigrant community and that's the group that has started to sort you know to service that location so you know the buildings in point a and everything around point a is in, entirely different that's just where the building happens to be and everybody's coming from uh this particular metro area to work there and again probably to your point jp they don't all have personal automobiles but how do we how do we look at that how do we track that how do we sort of shine a light on that for our clients if not the state to point out that you know you can't control where people work like that you got to have this flexible yeah, so, of labor so we are tracking that um like a uh, shout out to our company lightcast we're always going to reference them for their amazing uh data that they provide us um yeah but i look into it for all of our large distribution centers um where our people are coming from how far away they are we do this every time we're trying to recommend setting up a building anywhere you know you want to know are there people that can easily get to work? I don't want to set up shop here if everybody that's potentially going to work for me is 50 miles away. Um, so you can actually look at the net commuters uh, by zip code. And so that's how we kind of determine, you know, 5,000 people are leaving this. Uh, and you can narrow that down into these industries, the exact ones that are mentioned on the legislation. And uh, mainly, uh, yeah, I look at the tra transportation and uh, material moving ones. And it's always the same, like just, you know, 5,000 people moving from one center to the next. So you can't, there is data out there for them to track this and to understand just what their commuting looks like. JP, I, 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 that's great. That's helpful. JP, I don't think you're overemphasizing the transportation piece of this. New Jersey is unique in that fact. I think California is like that where we are, where people really do have to go somewhere to get to work. It's, you know, this, this type of labor, this is that type of labor that really we all became acutely aware of that you got to go, you got to be there to do the job. You can't, you know, it's a, not a nice, you know, work from home situation. No, when you're moving no, boxes no remote the possibility yeah. there, Ben. So, yeah. So transportation is, is a major, major component of this. And it's going to be quite disruptive when they take away the ability, like you pointed out of these employers to provide that value add, as long as it's a value add. Why, Ben, why aren't we encouraging employers to create transportation solutions for our workers. Yeah. Why are I, we I, discouraging I the them? You took, I, I know that that was you taking it from a problem solving point of view. And of course you wanted to build it and, you know, financially model it so that we could do it without charging our employees back. There is wins that, but... all the way around. You get loyalty from the workforce because now I have an employer that can provide me the ability to get to work. I don't have to spend gas money. I don't have gas to rely prices, on yeah. my community to get me there because I'm carpooling I mean, we create all of these hurdles that are, are creating disadvantages for the exact same community that we're trying to create advantages for. It, it just is it, going to help them in the long run. And it doesn't make any not. sense to me. It, it makes zero sense to me. I, I just don't understand it. Um, and, and I get, you know, if they don't understand it, I don't, what I don't quite understand is why these legislators don't go to the source of the problem and really understand it. That if you take away these possibilities like transportation, then basically you're handicapping the community you're trying to help. 
You're just selling yeah. them. You're not going to get to work. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. That's that, that specific example you used is begging for a workaround, too. They're going to have people buying cookies on the shuttle for $7 a pop just to keep that going, you know? Yeah, I didn't even think about that. I, yeah, I'm getting creative. I am a cookie fan. Just... <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, well, I, I mean... I, Go ahead. I was just going to say, I I know we're going to probably have at least one more, you know, session on this topic as the law evolves, as we get closer, we pass May 7th, but I didn't want to gloss over that second one that you really called out, which is the retaliation language in there that I have not seen emphasized as much, but really just jumped out at me being in California, knowing what that could entail. So I'll pivot to that if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, man. Of course. It's, it's, it's that one's alarming. Yeah. So just to recap, there's about 10 sort of categories in there of compliance that companies need to be aware of. We've touched on uh, the big one to be uh, preparing for, for May 7th, which is that pre-assignment sort of dispatch form, making sure you're giving out that right information. That's not a big one. If you have questions about that, you shouldn't hesitate to reach out. Um, there, there are a couple of open items on that, but that that's not a difficult one to to be prepared for. The second piece of the law that in explicitly goes into effect on May 7th is around retaliation for someone who's attempting to exercise their rights under this law. So um, I view that as a potential minefield because we have areas in California where, you know, there's these, like I, I refer to them as these cottage industries, you know, legal cottage industries where you can really take a, a subsection of a law and create a compliance nightmare for a company. If you can sort of catch them in the act, you know, inadvertently or not, they've stumbled into your legal minefield and you can create a case against them. And really, I mean, you drive around California, it's it's not the only place, but you see these billboards like your employer do this. Well, call us because we got them. You know, it's just, this is one of those areas, and it's written in a way that essentially um, the alarming piece of it is really around a presumption of retaliation. And this is how I described it to one of our clients, which is anytime you basically you know, take an adverse action, let's say terminate a temporary worker for an assignment, after they may or may not have expressed some sort of rights under this new Bill of Rights law, the law writes into it a presumption of retaliation, meaning you have now retaliated against that employee unless you can affirmatively prove otherwise. So now you have a problem. I I have tried to kind of like play this out in practice and kind of create a real world scenario. And this, it, it might be something very, very basic. And again, this is a little bit crystal ball, but I wanted to flag it for us and for our clients as something to watch out for because it really comes down to documentation and coordination and all of those, you know, communication, all the things we do to make sure that we're being, you know, both treating people fairly, but also being, you know, documenting things properly and being compliant. Let's say a temporary associate, you know, after May 7th, this is in effect, makes a complaint about that reference form that we were talking about, that it was inadequate or even something along the lines of they're maybe they're not getting paid fairly, or they've just made a general complaint. And within a short period of time, let's say a week later, that that worker's terminated, maybe for a completely valid reason. Unless we've got proper documentation, unless it's clear, unless there's been sort of a performance plan, unless we've done things properly, transparently, compliantly, you could potentially be facing a presumption of retaliation under this new Bill of Rights and find yourself immediately essentially subject to you know, penalties 
but now on your back foot trying to affirmatively prove that you were not reacting to whatever complaint or whatever right that they exercised under this law. So how do you prepare for that? To me, there, there is no best practice yet. There is no sort of rule book we can look to all and say, okay, we've been at this for 10 years now. We know how this game is played. We know what the games the law, lawyers are playing. We know how to prevent this. All you can do now is to really educate frontline supervisors, educate HR managers, anybody who's interacting with your extended workforce and say to them, when you're engaging with these folks, especially if you're going to be having them, you know, offboarding people, terminating temporary worker assignments, you've got to be following the best practice that we have today, which is involve your staffing agency, make sure that you're not doing things that sort of put you in the standing of an employer, but also you need to be documenting things. If you're, if you're terminating somebody for poor performance, you've got to be documenting, you've got to be documenting interactions and conversations and all of those types of things, all the things they should be doing anyway, but which now become essential unavoidable. You've absolutely got to do this. You got to be very, very careful because you're going to have someone. It, it's really creating a potential legal windfall for enterprising. And in my, in my view, bad faith, you know, charges against you as a client. Yeah. You know, um, I know that I'm, I'm, I'm careful about just complaining and not having you know, to deal with the realities of my, you know, my situation. Right. So, um, I, I wholeheartedly disagree with the, the way that this legislation is written. It's written poorly. It creates a very litigious environment. Um, it prevents people from going to work and it's going to close down most staffing agencies in New Jersey. Most staffing agencies um, will start closing down because the need will change. Companies will say, well, if I can't, if I'm going to have the same kind of exposure and I can't flex staff the way that I used to be able to flex staff and I got to pay the temporary labor community the same that I'm paying my FTEs, what's the point of having flexible talent? What's the, I should just move most of my distribution and business out of the state of New Jersey and the little keep, you know, have a smaller amount happening in New Jersey. And that smaller amount is just FTEs. Mm -hmm. And now I don't have to deal with this problem. Right. My, my, my most cynical take is that that was the point of the law was to, in fact, put staffing agencies out of business, put this type of labor out of business. But that kills whole segments. Yeah. It, 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 what it does industries. is that it crushes yeah. the exact community that the that the bill of rights is supposed to protect that they're that the temporary worker bill of rights is supposed to take care of because then companies will try to figure out a way to move that labor somewhere else and now New Jersey it has a large community of people that used to be employed one way or the other and in the temporary workforce which plays a role in in getting jobs for individuals they're playing a role in all of this. It removes that out of the equation. Companies are smart. You know, they go, we can't do this here. We're going to do it somewhere else. It's very simple. And that community gets completely disenfranchised. So I do not like it. However, that being said, I still have to deal with what the legislation is. So I do have some short recommendations right away. Uh, I'll lay them out quickly because we're at the 35th minute. I'm going to lay them out quickly. And this will be a 
TBD, right? To be determined on how where this all lands and a a to be continued as well, because we'll have follow-up podcast that talks about where the legislation finally ends and you know what companies are doing, and we'll share intelligence on how everybody is managing this. But it goes back to something that I am a big proponent for um, is workforce management. In that environment, you better have a very strong workforce management program in your building. And what does that mean? I have a specific person or persons that work with all of my flexible talent, my temporary associates in the building, dealing with daily employee relation issues and connecting, you know, solving problems on the daily consistently so that you're ahead of problems, you're building relationships with the community and you're solving problems and you're not being just reactive later. If you don't have a workforce manager, problems bubble up, relationships are not built properly. And then when somebody gets, in, in this case, somebody gets released and they've been complaining about something in the past that nobody has been dealing with and the client goes, well, they're just a temp. You know what? They complained that they didn't like so-and-so. Who cares? Just, you know, you know, I got to release them anyway, right? Where we need to reduce our workforce. This is going to be a major problem for you. So you better have a very strong workforce manager. I recommend a very strong workforce manager because the other piece of this is critical is documentation. You have to document every single thing that's going on with every single worker that's working in your building because this retaliation, this presumption of retaliation is problematic. So documentation is very important. And that's another use of a strong workforce manager. So if you're working with an MSP, insist that they have a workforce manager run the temporary associates within the within the buildings. If you have a, uh, an on-site temporary staffing company working for you, they need workforce trained workforce managers working on the floor. It's a it's a recommendation that I have. If you don't have an MSP in place, the one thing you're going to have to start doing is auditing your suppliers. Your suppliers are going to have to follow a this legislation as well. And so they're going to have to have their pay stubs in line. They're going to have to give these, um, the, what, what do we call them? The, 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 the assignment sheets that are starting, right? I like a dispatch the, form, yeah. A dispatch start, form, yeah. right? That that is occurring, that they're not charging their, their temporary associates for transportation. If you do not audit and have the ability to audit that, which is a lot of work. So if you don't have an MSP in place, you know, you're just going to have to do the work. You, it, you're doing yourself a disservice because you're going to be equally responsible. You are the host employer in that environment. And the law does not distinguish the difference between the temporary staffing agency and the host employer. So you have to have an audit mechanism. So my, my immediate three reactions on this, Ben, Brian is workforce manager documentation, audit. You better have those three things in line. So understand what the legislation is and the way to really deal with this is, again, not just the business side in regards to pay rates and stuff. That's a different discussion, different time. It's just how do we just stay out of trouble? Well, those are the three things that I would deploy in this. You guys have a agreement or disagreement there? Yeah, Couldn't I mean, agree that, more. That was my uh, less cynical take on that is that now these all now ex staffers need somewhere to go, and you have these companies that are just trying to avoid lawsuits. So 
instead of paying that markup on these people, let's pay this person's salary, have them handle it the same way they would as a temp staffer. And uh, then we bring, bring some of that expertise in house. Yeah. We're not even open to them if they're all like, you know, they can be seasonal workers for us still, as, as long as it's not for somebody else, then these don't even apply. We haven't even discussed the fact that when companies get to understand that even some of their seasonal workers are not hireable as an FTE in many states, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Thank you. There is already a huge problem of, of, of a labor shortage. And that labor shortage is not getting better. It's getting worse. Shout out to Ron Hetrick for the Sandsdemic paper. The big, it's called Bridging the Gap of in our labor, I think it's called bridging the gap. What is it? I have it on my on my thing. Demographic Demogra- bridging the gap one. in our labor force. It's a demographic drought, right? He's been giving us all nightmares since he dropped that paper. Yeah, <laughs> right. this is real. This is these are statistics that are not, you know, political, right? They're not debatable. These are real numbers, and we continue to figure out ways to disenfranchise communities that we need the most. We need these communities the most to run distribution for every product that's sitting on your desk right now. It came from a warehouse worker somewhere in the U S that put this in a box and sent it to you. Right. We continue to beat that community up by paying them poorly, creating legislation that hurts them. It's, it's just incredible to me. And in, in an environment where we don't even have enough workers, we don't even have enough people to help us get this cup on your desk. So guess what? So this cup that costs you 15 cents is going to cost you a dollar 15 and then it's going to go to $3 because you just don't have enough workers. You don't have enough workers. If it, if it can even get to you, right? And and we're even seeing this with companies as large as Amazon who they Amazon Prime I used to get I used to order something an hour later, it was knocking on my door, you know, it was like, you know, it was right there. Now you can't, it, that's not necessarily the norm. If it happens, great. But even Amazon saying, look, we can't promise you, we don't have enough workers. We are enough people. Um, I was just reading about JetBlue having to cut all a, a bunch of, uh, of flights to New York and New Jersey, specifically New Jersey. I think it was Newark saying that, listen, we have to cut our, and don't quote me on this on the amount, I don't know if it was in half, but substantially cut the amount of flights going to Newark. Why? Because the FAA doesn't have enough workers in Newark airport to get in all the planes. So there's an impact to all of us. Why? Because now JetBlue is making less money, right? I'm not a proponent of JetBlue. I'm just talking business. Mm -hmm. They're making less money. They're making less money. They got bills to pay. Guess what? The cost of airlines go up. This all this all comes down to the amount of workers that we have available to us and how we're treating those workers that we need the most. And legislation like this does not get it. The spirit of just trying to get votes by saying I'm going to help these communities and writing a legislation as poorly as written as this is is disheartening. It it's is perverse. concerning. It's it's, it's perverse, yep. and it is unfortunate. I, 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 people who don't know, I come from those communities, and I can know, and I tell you firsthand 
That is, they are communities that are consistently taking advantage of politicians in in ways that we can't fathom. And this is uh, another example of that. Nonetheless, I'm off my soapbox. We still have to run our businesses properly. So those are my points. And I think that as the months go by, we'll come up with a, a very good paper on how to manage business in New Jersey if you're using temporary labor and to ensure that you're in compliance and that you're not out of compliance, you're not getting hit with these fines. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm fairly certain, you know, I'm hearing from other staffing companies on how this is going to deeply impact their business in a negative way and impact those communities. That's my soapbox guys. Well guys, we'll soon. yep. We will talk soon. This is another episode of STSP. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, YouTube. Thanks very much. You know, the whole point of the podcast is not only to be on the JP and Ben and Ryan soapbox, but it's to give you information and to give you strategies on how to run your temporary labor workforce. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll look forward to talking to you guys real soon.